0: Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Father, your name, your presence, your being are great, mighty, powerful, incomprehensible. You are all wise, all knowing, and will forgive that ringtone that just went off. Your understanding is too complex and wonderful for us to possibly cherish. You deserve all of our praise and attention. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Father, I pray that we would invite you onto the throne of our hearts in this very moment. I pray we would allow your way with us in our lives, our families, our places of work, in our city, and in this country. We can be stubborn and feel our ways and our wisdom our best. Please soften our hearts to desire what is of you. May those in our lives that don't know you come to a knowledge of you and desire to follow you. Give us this day our daily bread. Father, absolutely everything we have is from your hand. Thank you for knowing what we need even before it is a thought in our minds. And thank you for providing all that we need at the perfect time, whether food, medication, a doctor's insight, a season of rest, the presence of a faithful friend and wisdom or verse from your word. You are the bread of life. And I pray that we would cling to you and your word more than we do food, water, sleep. I know for me, technology, entertainment, and I'm sure for many of us as well. We need you so much, Father. Sustain us this week as we enter days with challenges, trials, various conversations. These were all written in your book, the days that were formed for us, even before one of them came to be. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Father, you have been so gracious and forgiving towards us. Help us to do the same towards those we have felt wronged by. Help us to forgive easily and quickly and to not hold onto grudges or bitterness or feelings the enemy tempts us to believe are safer and even justified. I pray for reconciliation and friendships, marriages, and relationships between parents and children that are needed. Humble and soften our hearts to admit when we are wrong and need to apologize and ask for forgiveness. I pray for each person here for the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Father, will you surround us with a presence, with your presence to protect and lead us? You know the ways that each of us struggle. I pray your Spirit's voice would be loud and strong within our hearts louder than our own voices and our own thoughts. I pray for your armor for each of us as well, that belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes that bring the gospel of peace, shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, your word. And may we be in prayer at all times throughout this week, seeking and acknowledging you and your presence within our lives. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever.
1: Amen. All right. Thanks, Michaela. Um, I need to make a couple statements before I I continue. Uh, This is just a quick demonstration of the gospel. Louis, we forgive you for the phone. It's all good, man. Um, On the flip side, Sarah, I, I turned the microphone off. I'm sorry. So, you know, confession, forgiveness... Trying to, you know, the left and right hand of the gospel, doing what I can. All right, um, if you guys would just pray for, pray with me for a quick moment, and we'll get we'll get crack a lack in here. Lord, thank you for rain, and thank you for clouds. They're always a nice break, even in the winter. Um, God, I just pray that uh, you would be a blessing to everyone here through the message that uh, I guess you and I have just been kind of connecting to work on this week. I pray that it would be your word and not mine, and I pray that it would be food and nourishment to your sheep who you love and care for. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So I want to start off with a really quick story, and I'm going to stop the story halfway through to give like a nice little cliffhanger because that's a fun way to tell stories. So we'll start here. Uh, my first year of college, I was a U of A student, uh, started going to college when I was 18, right out of high school. I met a friend of mine in one of the first classes that I took, which was ancient Greek, because uh, even in my uh, angsty foolishness t- as a teenager, I still thought that ancient Greek would have some value to me at some point, point. and uh, results have been minimal so far, but we, we push along, we push along. Uh, but uh, I met this guy, and he was a friend of mine, and he was also a Christian. He was kind of awkward, which, again, we were 18. All of us were pretty awkward, but overall, he was a really nice guy. He would wear uh, bro tanks, and he would crack corny jokes, and uh, he seemed to have a really like, genuine fondness for his Christian faith. Within a couple of years, our friendship would start to kind of drift a little bit, and I found out that he'd become like actually pretty close with one of the more infamous uh, street preachers who, you, who would hang out at the U of A. Um, some of you guys already know where I'm going. Uh, it was at this point where to him, it was almost like his faith was already start, was starting to make more sense than it had in the past. He was getting this level of mentorship and discipleship from this older individual than he'd received before, and it, it was like making all the things in his mind start to click. He, he believed that not only did he hold this new truth and understanding of the Bible, but he had a strong and necessary need to preach it to the rest of the world, And as a result, he would create these signs with just truly awful, hateful messages to the people who were walking by. And he would yell at people, um, just kind of using all kinds of insults and attacks, um, speaking of hellfire and calling them names. Now, I would continue to see him on campus, and I I wasn't going to pretend like I never met him. And so... When I had the opportunity, I would, I would try to engage him as a friend. I would, obviously, I didn't agree with any of his practices, and I thought what he was doing was really toxic and, and, and inappropriate, but I still wanted to use whatever semblance of friendship we had. And so we would have conversations, and I would say, like, dude, like, at, at the very, very, very best-case scenario for you, you're, you're just, you're, your technique is completely sloppy and hateful and inappropriate. At worst, you're preaching false things about God and making people more like offended by him than they need to be. And I remember we would sit down, we would have more conversations and he had his like older mentors who were also notorious preachers from all around the country who would also engage in these conversations. And the consensus that I got was this, if you're going to preach, you have to be confrontational. This is what I heard. We need to startle people in their sensitivities. We need to startle them and make them upset. Because in his words, and he, he would twist what Jesus had said about his gospel, As he said, look, Jesus said that our good news would be rejected. So if we're not giving the people something that they reject, then how do we know what we're giving them is true? The way that we preach good news, he would say to me, needs to be offensive, jarring. So, We'll leave it there. Now we'll zoom forward to our passage for today, which we find in Thessalonians. Now, if you've been with us for a few weeks, you know some of the background, but I'm still going to try to catch catch everybody up. We've been going through the book of 1 Thessalonians, which is a letter that the Apostle Paul, who is a very key leader in the early church, wrote to this church in Thessalonica. It's a very uh, it's a very nice just ten dollar word. Just rattle it off to your friends at parties. I'm sure they'll be impressed. And uh, Thessalonica was a, was a city in Greece that was a big cultural hub and had a good number of Greeks and Jews and others there. Just a lot of culture and vibrance to this city. Now, Paul had visited the church and had helped them establish, but then due to many, many circumstances, he was unable to stay connected to them. So the best thing he could do at this point was just to write to them. And in this letter, he's writing and he's encouraging them because they're going through hard times. He's also kind of checking them on some things that they're doing not so well or inappropriately. And ultimately, and one of the things that we're kind of building to in this sermon series is he talks to them about the return of Jesus. Which, if we're Christians, like that's a really like deep cornerstone to our faith. This idea that Jesus didn't just float off to heaven to, you know, to never be seen again, but that he's actually coming back to correct all of the wrongs that the fall has, um, you know, kind of ravaged on the world that we live in. And so, in this passage specifically, Paul is saying you know, hey, like, I don't even need to tell you about brotherly love. You're actually doing a great job loving each other. He says, you got to keep doing it, though. Like, don't, don't, get, don't get sleepy on brotherly love, because it's actually really important that you keep that up. And then he kind of talks to them about work and not being dependent on others. See, a little bit of history in this church is really interesting, because if you guys have ever been, like, baby Christians, like, just, like, barely, like, believing, you're reading the Bible, things are coming, it's, like, to life to you, like, you probably remember there were some weird things you used to believe about the faith, or maybe it's just me projecting, because I definitely had had some wonky beliefs, um... One of the ones that this church was struggling with was that they had been told that Jesus was coming back for them, but they weren't told what to do in the meantime. And so there was a big chunk of this church where they were just like, well, shoot, if Jesus is going to be back on like Tuesday... I don't want to be stocking shelves at Walmart when he gets here. I want to be like, I want to be like soaking in the word and just like thinking about how awesome it's going to be. Like, I don't want, I don't want Jesus to come while I'm working a nine to five raking the lawn. I want to be, you know, just ready for it. And so this giant chunk of the church had just decided they weren't going to work. They were just going to kind of lounge and let the rest of the community take care of them. And I think by and large, the other community was like, I mean, hey, like, if that's what you guys want to do, well, we'll, we'll support you. We'll, uh, we'll make sure that you're, we'll, we'll make sure that we, uh, we, we kind of meet your needs here. And so they ended up in this weird position where on the one hand, there were people looking at this church like, hey, they seem really cool. They're like supporting all these people who aren't working. But then on the other hand, they're like, but they're also like, why, why, why is this like perfectly able-bodied, like grown adult person just sitting around all day and not, and not providing for himself? Like this is weird. And so Paul was basically saying like, look, the, the way that you guys are acting, on the one hand, you look really loving, which is awesome. But on the other hand, you're being really negligent. Like, you've gotten so hyped about this return of Jesus coming back that you've actually become unloving in how much you're anticipating Jesus coming back. Because now you're like a mooch on the community, and everyone has to pick up your slack. And so that leads to Paul saying, you know, it's actually pretty important that you work and work with your hands. Another thing that was interesting was a lot of the dudes in this church were Greeks. In this point in time, Greeks culturally did not like to work with their hands. They were philosophers, you know? Sons of Aristotle. They were, they were thinkers. They liked to write and, and make poems and stuff like that. They did not want to get their hands dirty. And so Paul's like, look... <laughs> Half of you aren't working. The other ones won't work unless you're selling something on Etsy. Like, dude, you guys, you guys just got to get your hands dirty. Like, you got you to gotta provide for yourselves. Because a big part of it was, if you can't provide for yourself, now you don't have the means to take care of the other people that are legitimately in need because what happens when you're not providing for yourself but there are widows and orphans and people who are legitimately poor and sick and in need around you is it going to be on the on the backs of everyone else who's working to take care of you and the other people like paul was really saying like guys this is kind of a fundamental thing as christians that we have to hold on to you you, you got to work you got to provide for yourself Because in your ability to provide for yourself, you're not stacking, you know, bills in your pockets and and making your wallet look thicker. You're supporting yourself so that you're in a position to help those who are in need. But guess what? If you're not working, you can't support yourself, and you can't support those who are in need. You're placing an unnecessary burden. And it's not loving. What's interesting is like we we look at this passage and it looks like Paul is saying, love one another and also work hard. But what he's actually saying is love one another and also love one another in your labor. It's just love two times. It's just that same idea repeated. So Paul says in response, Look, you guys need to grow in love for each other. You need to learn to live quietly and work to take care of yourselves and those who are in need. And so here's the thing, looking at this passage, this, an easy takeaway could be um, get a job. Like this could be get a job, the sermon. Um, and we could, yeah, we could talk for 45 minutes about like, you know, work hard, like, <laughs> get your nine to five, like, you know, don't take too much sick time, like, that could be the title of this sermon too, but that's not, that's not really the direction that I, that I think we need to go in this, because I, I don't think that's the direction that Paul is going in. I think now, don't get me wrong, I think that for some, that might be a relevant takeaway. Um, You know, I hate to say it, but, you know, Peter, if you've decided to quit your job because you're just really excited about Jesus coming back, Man, you, you got, got, call your boss back, man. Like, I, I'm sorry. Like, you might need to go back. So, where it's relevant, it's relevant. But I think the larger point that Paul is trying to make here is this our love is loud. Our love is loud. Paul says it himself in this passage. He says, Hey, you guys are doing a great job of loving one another but let me just encourage you to keep doing it and to not slow down and to actually love each other more and more like that's actually his prayer. When we go back to chapter three that Andy was in last week, his prayer for the people of this church was that they would grow and like increase in the love that they have both for the people inside the church, but also for those outside the church. There's a strong emphasis here on love, which, you know, as Christians is not, certainly not a foreign concept to it. And it's not just because love is the fulfillment of God's blueprint for humanity, even though it is. And it's not just because our love is a reflection of our God who is love and loves us, even though that's also true but it's because our love is loud. Our love is inevitably going to be a poster for the good news of Jesus to the outside world. I I was reading an article earlier this week where uh, this Christian musician was being interviewed and he said, I heard someone say that the biggest, loudest gospel you ever preach is the one that you live. Like you you can talk, preach, be super eloquent, To everyone you know, you can have that megaphone and just preach the best, most eloquent, articulate gospel in the world. But if your life doesn't match that, that's what people are really going to hear. I mean, Paul is also just acknowledging that at times the Christian church really isn't any stronger than its ability to love within its ranks, if the church falls apart because there's so much conflict that that people in the church no longer know how to love each other, that brothers and sisters in the faith are no longer able to love, Paul knew that that would be devastating for the church. I mean, some of you guys who have been around here at mission for a while remember back in 2020, We we were almost sounding like broken records up here talking about all the political stuff going on in the culture. And and, and we could even get questions still like, geez, Louise, why did you guys spend so much time talking about politics and Republicans and Democrats and left and right? And I, I think if I had to answer that, I would say, because we were and still are in the middle of a cultural crisis. And if we didn't emphasize the need for the church to continue to love each other because we're baptized in the same water and because we're born of the same spirit of Jesus, then how long would it take until our entire church splits down the middle because of political heresies? We were, we were fighting not to lose something very important. And so I think back to my friend, right? This, this, uh, this very, very confused hellfire preacher who's saying that if we want to challenge the world, we have to challenge them with an offensive gospel. I think what Paul would say is that if you want to challenge the world, if you want to counter the culture that we're in, we ought to ch- challenge them with love. We should offend people with our inability to speak poorly about others. We should offend them with our commitment to our communities and our willingness to build bridges rather than tear them down in spite of cultural or political differences. We should startle people with joy and peace and patience and all other kinds of things that, that point to this great tree of love that the Holy Spirit is feeding us from. I still remember, uh, like, this, this used to be a common trend. I, I think it was after that that shooting that happened in, in Charleston, uh, where... where uh, Majority African American church was was uh, attacked by a gunman, and I think around a dozen people were killed. And there were families who were going on the news saying that they forgave the gunman. And someone on Twitter, you know, Twitter, the the just the greatest place for informed and uh, gentle opinions, uh, said, you know, I'm si- I'm sick of seeing these these takes. Like, I'm sick of people feeling compelled to forgive so quickly. At a certain point, we should just say, no, we don't forgive this person. They did something horrible. And we need to hold them to the highest points of judgment and responsibility. Forgiveness is out. That That was the basis of their idea. When I think of, like, killing with kindness when I think of offending with Christ-like love, like I think we should be forgiving to the point of confusion. Because what this person was tapping into was they were realizing like forgiveness is so weak. Why don't you just choose to be angry? Why don't you just hold on to the power that you have over this person that wronged you? You're so much stronger that way. And I think what the gospel is actually inviting us into is the life of Jesus. And Jesus wasn't weak, but he definitely laid his life down out of love. It looks weak, and we will too. But that's the love that challenges. That's the love that provokes. That's the love that might give someone who currently doesn't have hope, hope. This is Paul's prayer for the church, that God would grow their love for each other and for all people, because in love our hearts will be more rooted in the presence and holiness of Christ. Guys, if we wanna see the face of God, we should seek it in our resolve to love. If we wanna counter the culture that is around us, we shouldn't oppose them with harsh words but in a painful determination to love. If we wanna prepare our hearts for the coming of Jesus, don't quit your jobs, (laughs) don't put in your two weeks whether Jesus is coming back in five days or five centuries, if we want to prepare our hearts for him, we should pray that our hearts would be seasoned with the grace of divine love. Even when it's tough. And I don't think anyone here would disagree that sometimes it's, it's tough. You know, I experienced... Uh, at one point in the past, I, I had a really good friend who was just getting just, just, just so deeply hurt by another individual in the church. Not, not this church, just friends on the outside. But one Christian friend deeply hurt by another Christian friend, and the factor was the person who was holding the knife and twisting it, they were just hurt, man. They just, they just had a deep wound in them. But their response to their hurt was to give it and to share it with others around them. And it's just so dang tough to see. It's not easy. And the thing is, the, the enemy who hates us and wants us to, to not just burn away from God, but to, but to suffer in our lives, he will be so quick to justify everything all of the ill that we commit on others as long as we're going through a hard enough time to make it feel fair. Going through difficult times can be the easiest opportunity for that voice to say, hey, what you're doing, justified. Because what they did to you or what happened to you or the tree that fell on your car or whatever the case may be, you're entitled to what you're doing and don't feel bad. And I'll be honest with you guys, like, that's not an easy voice to argue with. But I pray that all of us, at the very least, recognize that it's there. And just as Jesus was able to go toe-to-toe with Satan in the desert, guys, we're not in the desert. We don't have to go toe-to-toe with Satan. We'd lose. We have the joy of knowing that he... He's already hog-tied and, and his, his, you know, sleeves stapled together. Like, it's, it's, it's not easy to love in the midst of that, but Jesus will help you. Jesus will help. I want to tell another story. This one's very different. In the 1940s, see, very different. In the 1940s, there was a man who lived in Japan by the name of Takashi Nagai. He was a radiologist in the town of Nagasaki in a district that was actually known for a community of Christians who had been there for, since like the 1500s. Takashi converted to Christianity as an adult, largely due to the influence of his wife Midori, who he was living with with her family while uh, while he was a student in Nagasaki. She had prayed for him for years that he would come to the faith, and eventually he did, and that was a great joy to both of them. Tragedy did hit the family because uh, radiology, as you can imagine, which is you know dealing with a lot of big X-ray machines and radiation, uh, it was a very dangerous career at that point because you know the science was still relatively underdeveloped. And Takashi actually contracted leukemia, because of his proximity to the uh, to dangerous radiation. But in one of his journals he was optimistic because he thought even if I'm slow, even if I'm dying like I have the hope of my faith and I have my wife by my side. And then on August 9th, 1945, Takashi was working in his hospital when the city of Nagasaki was struck with an atomic bomb. His wife was killed instantly. On top of that, roughly 30,000 other people in the city were killed instantly. And 8,000 of the 10,000 Christians in that city were also killed. At this point in the story, it'd be easy to say, you know, and he shrugged it off, and he said, you know, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. But that's not true. Takashi mourned, and he mourned for a very, very, very long time. In the aftermath of these attacks, his leukemia had significantly gotten worse because of the radiation from the attack, and his health had taken a steep decline. And yet, he was determined to dedicate the rest of his life, however strong or long it would be, to love. And so he loved his children, and he spent time with them as long as his strength would allow. And he loved the fellow survivors of his community, and he would gather their stories and write them down so they could be commemorated and preserved He loved the science community because he he continued to document the ways that the radiation was interacting with his body so that the world could learn the effects of radiation sickness firsthand. He loved the, the, the world around him because he was studying how the radiation was interacting with the plants and the wildlife right at ground zero just to see what effect it would have on the local ecosystem He loved his town as he lobbied and helped to rebuild the community that had been destroyed. And he loved the church. And he would write essays and poems. He would write entire books encouraging peace from the aftermath of an atomic wasteland. And he would pray and he prayed deeply. Now, a story like his is noteworthy because it was in the aftermath of one of the most gruesome eras in human history. In World War II, millions of soldiers and civilians were killed. Horrible crimes against humanity were being committed on basically every continent. Genocides were happening. Even here in the States, which we love to paint as the the, the right hand of God during World War II was still very, very guilty of forms of oppression and just fear of outsiders. In the aftermath of a world that spoke in fear and explosions and violence, this man, Takashi, spoke in poetry and he spoke in research, and he spoke in prayer. Now, this man's life was quiet, but his love was very loud. Not because he was great, but because he was reflecting the beautiful love of God, a God who he loved and a God who loved him tremendously until the day that he died and went to see him face to face. And one day, the love of Takashi Nagai will ring louder than the bomb that destroyed his city. And on that day, everything will be made new. But until then, until that day, we will follow our friend's lead. I pray that each of us, myself included, would commit ourselves to a life of quiet, humble, Working love. Pray with me. Uh, Heavenly Father, I, uh, I thank you for Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. I thank you for this encouragement that still just has so much significance to us today. I pray that we would love each other well and where we fail and we often do, that we would not shame and scold and harm ourselves, but we would lean on your perfect, perfect love and your goodness. And uh, help us to love, help our hearts to grow in love, love for each other, love for our families, love for our communities, love for Christians, and love for people who are outside of the faith. Um, help us to work to just stay busy at the tasks that you have given us. And that in doing so, others would look and see a hope that is invincible because it is the hope that you have given us. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, amen. All right, next we're gonna do a couple of things. Uh, The first is we're going to go into a time of silent confession. This is a great opportunity for us to just respond in whatever way you would like to, just whatever you feel God has placed on your heart right now. Uh, So we're going to take a couple of minutes to do that. As we respond, in addition, we're going to have uh, the Lord's Supper. Uh, we're going to have Mike and Josh and uh, Kendra leading us in musical worship, and then we have the opportunity for uh, financial giving with the tablet in the back? Question mark yeah, We'll see about that. Um, but if you want to give, you know, feel free to ask around, and we'll we'll make sure you can. Um, I wanna say it's easy for any, any sermon to come across like, like a do better message. Like you walk away and you say, all right, I've got my list of things to do. I'm gonna work on this. Like I, I don't want every Sunday or any Sunday to, to, look like, to look or feel like I just gave you a bunch of new week resolutions for you to go and, and work and, and please God with. Like, ultimately, and this is why I love the beauty of the Lord's Supper, is that when, when we come, when, when we as Christians, people who believe in Jesus, even if it's just this much, when we come and receive the Lord's Supper, this is not us affirming our promise to be the best and brightest and most perfect Christians possible. It's actually us remembering that even on our best days, we couldn't, And so Jesus did it for us. And that salvation is never a ladder that we can climb, but it's a gift that we've been handed from the heavens to the lowest place that we found ourselves. And it's a blessing. And so when we take communion, and I invite anyone to take communion with us, as long as they have, like I said, just that baby, baby seed of faith, even if it's for the first time today, I'd love to invite you guys to come take the Lord's Supper because in it, we remember that Jesus, as one of, the, peop- as one of the, uh, the persons of God, like we talked about in the kids' message, felt lonely on our behalf. Jesus felt pain and suffering on our behalf out of great love and compassion for all of us in a time when our hearts were incapable of doing anything good for him. And so when we take this, we remember that Jesus loves us. We remember that Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, is present with each of us everywhere we go. And we remember that there is a time to come, which Paul was promising to the Thessalonians, when we would sit across a table face-to-face with Jesus, and we would break bread, and we would drink wine, and we would have a good time. So, um... So yeah, we're going to go into our, our time of confession, two minutes of silence, and then afterwards, please join me at the table, if you will. Let me, uh, let me start our prayer off real quick. Father, uh, Lord, we, we come to you every week and every day knowing that we are uh, just not what we ought to be. We know that we drop the ball. We know that we do things that we're not supposed to or that we shouldn't. We know that we don't do the things that we should do. We know that our thoughts are often really lousy, really reactive, really hateful, really frustrated thoughts. We know that at our core, of course, um, we still feel very selfish. But also, God, we believe that your love and kindness has placed in us um, something that, that can't be tarnished or changed. We believe that you're making us new creatures and that every day we're a little bit more new than the day before that. And so God, please just help us to confess to you the things that we're feeling lousy about, the things that we know that we failed you in. But God, I pray that we would not feel those and confess those things so that the enemy could attack us with shame, but so that you can encourage us with the beautiful feeling of forgiveness and knowing that our slate has been cleaned And it's been clean since the day that Christ died. And so, uh, yeah, help us to speak honestly to you right now, Father. And um, just give us hope that you are still here with us, even when we're not deserving. Please help us pray.